Welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema, one reel at a time. My name is Courtney Small. I write about film for several publications, including ThatShelf.com, where the show is hosted, and Cinema Access, to name a few. I'm also the co-host of the podcast, Frameline. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by friend of the show and cinephile Bob Turnbull. Bob used to frequently write about film on his site, Eternal Sunshine of the Logical Mind, and was a frequent contributor to Row3.com. Listeners will remember Bob when he was last on for episode 58, where we discussed the cult film House. Bob, how are you doing today? I'm great, and thank you for flashing back to one of my favorite films, House, or Haosu, which is uh, which is so much fun. Yes, that, that was a, a treat, and uh, as we were mentioning just before we started the show, I think the last time we recorded that, the pandemic had just started, and now we are approaching almost a, a year. That, that was our early 2020 naive selves, and now yes. we're hardened and gristled and, you know, cynical. So how are you holding up, you and the family? Are you Viggo Morrison in the road where you're just, everything is bleak, you've got the, <laughs> you know, you're prepared for everything else, or are you still doing well and, you know, have hope that we will get through it sooner and later? Uh, more, more of the latter, although occasionally the former kind of kind of dips in. Uh, as we were chatting much before we started, we are lucky, privileged for lack of a better term. We're able to work at home. Uh, our son's at university and he's, you know, uh, on site with his housemates and taking all the classes from their house and mm-hmm. everybody's good. So yeah, we want this to end, but uh, we're pretty fortunate at the moment. Our main film for today is the 2020 drama Education, directed by Steve McQueen. And this is the fifth film in the Small Axe anthology. And the film is set in the 1970s, and it focuses on a 12-year-old boy, Kingsley, who is abruptly moved from his regular school and sent to a school for the, quote, educationally subnormal. Bob, you want to kick us off with a few thoughts on this film? Yeah, where, where do I start? Uh, first of all, it, it was excellent. Um, so I just watched it again last night for a second time. And as much as I enjoyed it the first time, I, I felt because it was so short, so I think it's 63 minutes, it felt a little bit rushed. And I wanted to know more and I wanted to expand. But on second viewing, it, it really felt like a complete whole. I mean, I, I still did some additional research afterwards about some of the pamphlets, uh, the Dalton Report, Margaret Thatcher, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it, it really, I don't know, it just came together even more for me second time around. And, I, and I'm not sure if I wasn't focusing on certain things or if I was just able to see the through line a lot better. Uh, and I, I think it's a, a really nice way to end the small acts um, set of films with, I guess you could call it some optimism at the end as the world opens up for the character but obviously he's still got one or two thousand hurdles to overcome uh, as do many of the other characters from uh, from the previous films uh, but overall that was excellent I'm looking forward to diving into it yeah this, I I quite enjoyed this one um, I took the small axe anthology slowly um, I you know I started off quickly with mangrove and lovers rock because those were that everyone was buzzing about but just Due to the subject, and I knew some of these things were going to deal with different levels of trauma. I, I just personally paced my, myself because I, I felt like I endured a lot of films about Black trauma in, in 2020. <laughs> I just needed to, to slowly savor it. But I, I was quite impressed with, with this film and the whole Small Axe anthology. And we'll get into that a, a bit later. But this film hit close to home for me on several levels in ways I wasn't expecting to. And I think it's interesting. You say that it felt rushed. And I get that sense. But at the same time, I felt there was parts where he deliberately lingers on certain scenes oh, for to, sure. to really, you know, to make, really make you feel 
the sense of boredom that the characters feel you, you almost you, you can feel some of the exhaustion that other characters feel like it's it's a very interesting and complex work but it's done in such a digestible way that you know i walked away thinking i really want other people to to see this and it's it's bound to have some spark some discussion so how about we dive into the main crux of the film which is the the school system in the 1970s and the way that it was i guess using certain policies to disproportionately remove black youth and black youth of caribbean descent from mainstream schools and into these special schools. I want to get your thoughts on like how it approached that topic and how you thought it really opened people's eyes to what was going on. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think you actually hit it when you're saying it was digestible, and and that's meant as a compliment, not as in you know, oh, mm-hmm. it was it was digestible stuff. Yeah, if I said rushed, I didn't really mean it that phrase. I think it was more that I I felt like I wanted to know more. Yeah. Um, but you know that that's a bit on me. If I'm curious about it, I got to dig into it because you can't spell out every single piece. And I think the second time through, that really that really helped me to start like you know digging deeper into it. None of what I I saw in the film or learned from the film was surprising uh, particularly given you know everything that we've seen this year uh, but it, it certainly is depressing in so many ways and knowing that these were actual policies of local and larger governments and, and you know just for their own standings right my understanding is back in the early 70s the school systems were allowed to kind of do their own thing hire their teachers pay them what they want uh, things of that nature so they were able to really kind of say oh look at our stats in education they're great because they were able to shuffle off a certain segment of their population that weren't doing very well on the standardized IQ test, which of course raises a totally separate point about IQ tests always having been very biased and, and, and culturally um, insignificant for certain segments of the population. I mean, just not fair and doesn't really, you know, it's not a good indication of intelligence. So they were doing it for their own kind of stats. Uh, with probably just a side of racism thrown in there just for good measure. And I, I like the way the film handled that. I mean, certainly in the rest of the small acts uh, set of films, some of the, uh, the the racism that we encounter is a little bit more full bore in, in your face for obvious reasons. Um, not that it's subtle here. I like the way he framed it because it seemed like that is how you would encounter it, whether it's the principal the teacher, how they would call it out right to somebody's face, but it was there and it was obvious. And, and I liked the way the characters kind of uh, dealt with that and banded together as a community. I mean, that that certainly seems to be one of his theme acts, that of, of community, how to band together and how to face these problems. It is amazing to see that the West Indies folks in particular, not, not that they were the only ones who suffered through racism during that period or even today, but uh, all five of these films certainly brought out so many issues that I wasn't specifically aware of at all. And it's really fascinating to see that history, uh, particularly when it comes to some of the education stuff, which we can talk more about as we go along. Yeah, it's it was one of those where the the racism is is so co- covert, but yet, you know, looking at it with modern eyes and, you know, especially as people start to really delve into systemic racism in the, I guess, post George Floyd era that we're, we're now kind of working our way through watching it, it felt like, man, this is so overt. But when you think back to time in the 70s, but also just the education systems in general, it is a lot more covert. Like the 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 principal's a, a perfect example of it. He calls Kingsley's mother and says, your son is being problematic. It's clearly the first time that she's hearing of any of this. 
and we have decided to move him to this school. It's for your benefit. And it's kind of presented in a way that we are being generous to you. We have identified this problem and we're going to help you by solving it for you, not letting her know the full extent of the problem, not letting her know that she has options to, to question that problem. And, you know, being the parent, she just assumes, well, you guys know best. I, you know, I'm not going to question the school system because we have been told that the school system does things a certain way and we will just adhere to it and essentially get steamrolled without even knowing her rights. And it's it's kind of interesting that, you know, the film calls out later on how even just going to that school, being associated with that school will ruin a person's career. And we see that the school has students of all backgrounds. There are white students, black students, there are students that clearly are on the autism spectrum. They're all being kind of thrown into this one big melting pot. But you get the sense that more often than not, it is the, the black students that are, are getting sent. It's a lot tougher to send a white student um, to that thing. I, I know, I thought it was a, a really fascinating look at, at school systems. It made me also think a lot about my experiences growing up in the education system, even here in, in Canada, which is obviously not at the ex- same level of what we're witnessing in this film in the 70s, because it's you know decades later, but also thinking about my children's experiences. And you, know, you have a son now who's in university and you've gone through those early years that this film has talked about. And even just like the, the similarities and the, the vast differences, I, I think this film gives you a lot to, to, to focus on and think about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like what you said with the principal too, the way he frames it as an opportunity. It's a special school to help him, but it's an opportunity to do even better when, you know, of course, clearly that's not the case. And she doesn't even know that she can appeal. I, I was interested too by, by the mix, the, the diversity of students in both his initial class, uh, although it was primarily white, but there was, you know, a diverse set of students there and in the, the new school. But you could tell that, you know, there's the, the, uh, the one black girl that he, he started with who seemed perfectly, um, I don't want to say the word normal, but yeah, you know, somebody who was intelligent, who could read. Why is she even there? And I think you start seeing her act out a little bit later on because, well, why not? Because there's just nothing else to do. So that kind of is that little bit of a hint that, yeah, the, the black students tend to get shuffled there just because, whereas maybe there are some of the actual uh, problematic students that, that come there for other reasons. And they're just kind of dumped there. The, the scene uh, you were referring to before, the, the, uh, the sort of slow one, it is, uh, I, I timed it again last night. It was over three minutes of the teacher doing a horrible, horrible cover <laughs> version of House of the Rising Sun, which goes between funny, boring, amazing when is this going to end why is he doing this and then coming to realization that that's how the kids are probably feeling except for the yeah. whole you know, amazing aspect I, I mean more amazing from a filmatic point of view I, I thought it was really really well placed especially second time through it was kind of like it, it wasn't just oddly placed humor it was kind of like this is the kind of thing that to put up some dude practicing guitar horribly and then at the end going like all right so who wrote that mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's the important thing that they're going to learn from this yeah, and, and the, the, the assumption that they would know that that song is written by the animals. Well, you know, everybody should. But... You know, yes, yes. But also the fact that they are deemed as animals in the most part. Like, you know, when he first gets to that school and they have recess and the teachers are like, well, don't climb on the fence. 
and you think, okay, they're going to be in like a regular playground. And then when you, when the camera actually pans out and you realize, no, they're just like outside, they're, they're essentially set free in the neighborhood. And yeah, like a parking lot. <laughs> yeah. Run amok. And then when you hear the whistle come back. Yeah. And, and of course she, the teacher has to drop that nice little line to the, to, uh, to our hero saying, uh, you know, go play in the trees like you're back in the jungle yes and again the the you know that's more overt racism but you think of nina the the black student that you were talking about who at the beginning seems perfectly normal and stuff and you see how both her and kingsley slowly regress you know kingsley starts barking at his mom at one point because there's a girl that barks all the time and they are just allowed to be wayward that you essentially become the environment you're placed in. Like, there's a line where Hazel says to, I think it was the mother, where she says that if you call a student dumb, they will eventually start to act out or become what you what you call them, right? And we are seeing firsthand these students being thrown into this situation and essentially becoming what those who have labeled them that. Yeah, that, that's that's an excellent point. I, I find that McQueen manages to tie in some of those background things, people talking on the radio or, or TV programs to the actual story itself. And that's a perfect example. It also kind of goes to that sort of inherent thought that, well, everybody should know these white blues artists or, you know, at the beginning in the classroom, the reading of Mice and Men. Gee, I wonder why some of the kids aren't as engaged. I mean, granted, for any kid, you, you may not be necessarily engaged in that, but you know, as they come around to later in the movie, when he starts to learn more about black history and culture, and it's something he can engage with a little bit more, you see his eyes kind of open up and, and interest is there. And his reading abilities, you know, start to take off. Hey, who would have thought that if you tailor certain specific educational opportunities to the child, that maybe they might be more engaged? The, the approach for education has always been like a, a one size fit all. And we are now slowly working and evolving the different programs so it's tailor-made so you know back in the 70s you you didn't have a a special needs program whereas now you have for a program for children specifically for children dealing with autism different type of learning disabilities but it's also tailored for each specific trait because you know not everyone who has a learning disability or not everyone who's suffering from a different type of autism ha- needs the same things to learn. Like it's more specialized. Whereas in this film, it's just kind of, we're discarding you, but we are doing it in a way that makes it look like we're helping, but they, they really aren't. And the, the whole sequence with the animals, teachers playing the animal song on guitar is a, a wonderful example of that because these students are just supposed to naturally know who this artist is like everything that they're being taught is a specific type of of history even in the regular school system if you think about it his problem is he can't read he understands scientific concepts he can do math it's just that he can't read and him not being able to read it's obviously an embarrassment but their responses to him are far different than the other kids. Uh, and I think back to when he's in music class, it's his friend. Um, he's a, he has two friends, one who's white. And I think one, the other one, I believe is South Asian, if I remember correctly. And it's the white kid who's at first goofing off. So then he joins in, but he's the one who gets kicked out of the class. And then you start to see just the different ways in terms of punishment that he's dealt with. And this is something that I guess McQueen tackles a lot in all the other small acts films. The, the consequence, the punishment never justifies the supposed crime. Yeah. For making a, a not, not a fart joke in this case, but the equivalent of doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also I think at the time they're, they're singing, um, Oh, uh, was it London's 
London's Burning, I think, or yeah, along those lines. So, so again, he, he's sort of making this kind of you know point of like, yeah, uh, things are going to get bad here, and you're just you're, you're playing this damn song, <laughs> and again, not something that's necessarily relevant to, to him. Um, I, I like point too about how McQueen kind of focuses on that, even even in small doses. Um, I rewatched Lovers Rock as well, and there's the one scene where the main female character's cousin is trying to come into the party, and he's he's tussling with the the massive bouncer at the door until the bouncer sees a police car outside and he quickly pulls the guy in because he knows that if they're, you know, caught arguing, something bad is going to go down. They're going to get pulled away. Somebody's going to get hurt as opposed to, you know, any, any white person where the cops might just kind of say, Hey, quiet down over there. Like, like it's clear that that's why he's bringing, you know, this troublemaker, a guy who wants to keep out of the party into the party because he knows it's going to go bad. Otherwise. Um, yeah. He, he drops that all over his films for sure. And there's also the, I guess in many ways, Kingsley is is failed by his his mainstream school on several levels because there's the they just discard him, you know, which is obviously the, the greatest sin. But there's the fact that he's 12 years old and throughout mainstream schooling hasn't learned how to read. You see that they don't even take time to help him sound out or nothing. It's just you don't know the word, whatever. All right, you're dumb. He's completely discarded, which is a whole other through line that, you know, this if this home was two hours or so, they might be able to explore even further but i think it also in its just few subtle ways hits the nail on the head really hard because everyone in his family is like he's not he's, he's a bright child he you know they, at first they don't realize he can't read but they think well he might just be slow not working hard enough and you think of how many students th- throughout the years have been essentially discarded because of that like we can here in canada we we not only had issues with racism in schools but heck, we've had residential schools which is you know, essentially you don't speak English or your culture is different. We're going to send you to the school where you get tortured and I guess converted to quote unquote whiteness, but they don't come out any, any better, right? Like there's a, there's a whole history of mainstream education failing students. And then you have on top of that now, as you see in this film, this whole other subsect that is not only failing, but literally just keeping them down, keeping them as, as dumb as possible. Yeah. And it goes like from generation to generation, because as you find out in the film, his father also uh, can't really read. You know, he, he gets yep. the daughter to read something to him. And it's, I guess, something they've just managed to work around. Not easily, obviously, but and that's why the mother has to kind of validate with her that he can't read late in the film. She says, read this. Like she has to prove it to her. She's probably had that inkling, both her husband and, and the, you know, the, the two males obviously being now experts at avoiding things, getting somebody else to read it, saying, oh, no, I knew that, but, but. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing what you can, you know, get through when there's nobody else there to help you, when you don't have that sense of community. And, and that's not necessarily, you know, diss on the parents because they have their own struggles. And, and that really sort of comes out in that one community meeting with all the other parents where there's, uh, I think the other mother who said, you know, I came here with a dream. And then when I see that dream in my children, I hate them for it because she's been struggling to achieve that. And then she sees her kids aspire to it and she ends up hating the kids, her kids. And, you know, she admits that how horrible is that? And, yeah. and I think you know, that's when Kingsley's mom was like, Oh, that, that's exactly what I've been doing. Yeah. There's, there's a very interesting through line. And I, I like that you brought up that scene because it's, it's a subtle scene, but it's, it's very powerful. And you're seeing uh, one of my favorite lines from that scene is uh, one of the parents stands up and basically says they assume that all the jobs that they have here in the UK, the, whether the low or the high income jobs, we didn't have where we came from. 
right? Like they, they assume that we know absolutely nothing. And it, it reminded me of a summer job I had before going into university where I was working at a insurance company, but in the, the mailroom. And I was working alongside a man who was from Egypt and he was like an engineer back in Egypt. And now he's working in the mailroom of an insurance company. And I mean, you know, life takes you on different directions. And he, he was just a really smart guy, hard worker. He was providing for his son, who I guess was just a you know, regular mainstream school in, in Toronto, was doing quite well. But just the, the sight of him and talking to him, I was like, why are you here? Right. But then you find out that when he came to Canada, it wasn't so easy to get into the engineering field. They didn't consider his uh, qualifications to be, you know, like there's just so many hurdles that are put in front and I'm like wow you're working in a mailroom but you're you're brilliant <laughs> like there's something flawed with yep. the system and you see all these parents who are essentially saying that you know they came for the the UK dream the North American dream of prosperity and they were met nothing with but hardship and obstacles and now their children are are, are facing that and there's a certain level of shame that the parents have for I guess want, wanting a better life for their kids and seeing that they're not getting it but also as you said with his father in Kingsley there's a certain shame where they're essentially hiding in plain sight because they can't read. So like the cycle of shame and the way that it forces people to kind of recoil is, is prominent throughout this film. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's systematic. Like it's built into the system. Mm -hmm. um, so much so like that the father is basically kind of saying, well, Kingsley can, can be a tradesman, which is a fine profession, yep. but it limits his options. Well, here, here is what to do. Right. And, and even kind of goes to, um, I was reading a little bit, but I nowhere near uh, understanding of the education reform act that Thatcher brought in, like probably about 15 years past when this movie was set, bringing in the whole idea of the parent as a consumer and providing them choice, which, you know, on the surface, you might go, well, it's good to have choice, right? Well, it's good to have options that fit your child so you can figure that out that's very different than choice here's stuff go figure it out on your own no here's some options that make sense for different modes of education you may then have a choice within that but you got to have that uh some guidance some working with other government or community or other teachers or whatever and it's interesting that you know his father just goes like well th this is the option you have one option and it's that's why, at least at the end of the film, you've got that optimistic view of like, well, actually, the world might be opening up for, for Kingsley now. And I also felt that the father himself was misguided because it sounded like this particular school that Kingsley's in almost eliminates that option for for the traits because the work that they're getting is super repetitive and very remedial. And like even in the trades there has to be a certain level of education, you know, just because oh, yeah. someone goes to, to college doesn't mean that they're not educated, you know, going into the trades, like, but he won't even get to go to college or the, the type of trade work. Like I felt like he might, if he's lucky, get a factory job where he's essentially putting something in a bag. Yeah. Yeah. Like an assembly line worker or yeah, yeah. They basically said like the type of life you're going to get, the type of your options in terms of your love life, your potential family for the future will all follow uh, a same pattern. And it's interesting because both his dad, who is full of pride and, and, and shame because that he can't read, but the, the mother as well, they're, they're also stuck in a cycle where it's hard work. All they know is hard work. You get up, she has two jobs that she's yeah. dealing. He's his trade jobs. Like they're constantly tired. So they are trusting in the school system, as, as many people do, to not only take care of their child, but educate. Like They're not putting in the time that you 
would expect as a parent to really see how your kids are doing because they they really don't have that option when they're home it's you gotta cook dinner go to sleep i think like there's a shot of like the mother falling asleep during your prayers or something like it's just you know that sense of constant exhaustion and i know a lot of times people say well it's the parents need to take more responsibility but you're seeing here the system's also designed that they can't take more you know they're they're being worn down yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just got to keep the roof over the head and get some food on the table first. And then, and yeah, you, you see, I guess at the start, there's, it's almost like a shift change. She's coming back from her job. He's, I think, either making breakfast or getting his lunch ready to go to his job. And then she's got to get ready to go to her second job after the kids go to school. Hey, wait, like, <laughs> you find time to raise a child at that point. When you're talking about the, the choices and how, you know, Thatcher brought in this reform. And throughout history, and as we've seen, whether it be the UK or or North America, whenever they talk about education reform, there's always a talk of of choice. You know, people should have the choice, but the choice only really benefits those who are already privileged. And the choice is usually designed to keep those who are privileged enjoying their privilege. It's systematically designed this way. And watching this film, part of you going, oh man, the 70s was a you know, it was a horrible time for people of color in the UK. And then you think back, you're like, no, this, a lot of this is still going on, but it's just evolved into, you know, even subtler, more strategic ways of, of keeping the status quo. Yeah. It, it gets built even more and more into the system. It's just almost an assumption now that this is how we're going to run things or that the problem schools always happen to be in certain neighborhoods and, you know, it's, it's self-perpetuating in so many ways. And, and, and that's where that little shred of optimism, and and maybe it's just a very little shred, that whole community aspect. Oh, I forget the name of the group now. I, I wrote it down somewhere. But the uh, there's the, the Black Parent Movement, I think, uh, and the Black Education Movement, I think it was the first one involved, helped kind of spur these additional classes, community classes for, I think specifically at the time, a lot of the West Indies children, and I don't know if it evolved beyond that, to engage them in you know their own culture to give them things that they're missing in their schools to maybe help them get back to those original schools if possible um and and that's you know the community taking it you know um for themselves uh, Mm -hmm. because they didn't i almost said they didn't have uh, a choice otherwise because then then that kind of says oh well you're saying that they need choice no they need to uh, allow to show government what the options should be and that's different than the Oh, here's this random choice, like healthcare choice. You should be able to pick your own healthcare provider. That isn't working out so well in yeah. many cases. Uh, and you know, if we listen to DeVos, that that certainly uh, was not going to help the education system in the states either. Um, we'll, we'll stop the political tirade there, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm with you there, and I I, I love um, getting back to that scene with the, the community scene with the parents and all that being involved. I really love the characters of Lydia and Hazel. So uh, Hazel is the one who goes into the school the first time. She essentially is a bit of a spy. She says she's a psychologist. Uh, apparently she was a teacher in British Guinea, Guiana, sorry, uh, previous. And she's there to actually find the names of the kids who were railroaded into these schools and, and try and get them help. Uh, and she's a fascinating character. She's not in the movie very much, right? I think she's only got like three major scenes. But she's really, she creates such an impact every time she speaks. And then Lydia, who, who's the more uh, political savvy one, I guess, she kind of speaks with punctuation. Like she speaks in exclamation marks and pauses and ellipses and periods to finish sentences. And I love those two kind of in tandem getting their points across. Um, it, it was funny because that scene, you know, there's a few almost speeches by you know, um, Lydia or Hazel say something and a parent stands up 
not an answer to a question, but to say something. Many movies, that's a clunky scene because it feels like you're trying to get plot forward or your themes out. But the things these parents say are so emotionally impactful, sorry for, for a terrible word there, and, and well-written and well-acted that you don't, you don't even notice that. I kind of thought that afterwards. It's like, oh yeah, they were never asked questions and they just kind of randomly stood up. But the, the two mothers and the older gentleman who stood up, really, really just strong moments to really kind of hit home what so many of these people must have gone through. Yeah. And they offer, I think, two, their two styles work well because they speak to the different facets in that parental. So there's times where Lydia is speaking and is giving more of a political version of things. And you can see it's not quite sitting right with some of the parents. So then Hazel will get up and reframe it in a, in a way that hits more the human element. And, then, and you can see the kid go, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. And it's like, you know, you, I like that kind of dichotomy in many ways that you, you need different styles and different approaches that are all working towards the, the same goal. And I think Hazel, even though she only has a few scenes, like when she first walks into that classroom and starts demanding their attention, I found that fascinating because yeah. at first there's a bit of a pushback, you know, this, well, who are you? Whereas a lot of the times, as you see with their white teachers, they don't question anything. If the, if the white teacher says something, they just automatically do it. Like that whole ingrained who the authority figures really are is something that's fascinating. And this was something that my wife and I were discussing just a, a few weeks ago because we were talking about our experiences with the school system. And we were talking about how, well, if you think about like just for us, our personal experiences growing up, we've if you think of like from junior kindergarten all the way to when you graduate university, that's what, 18 years of schooling uh, back because we had what, 13 years from grade one to 13 or back when OAC was still a thing. It's a big chunk. Yeah, it's a big chunk. But you think of like, well, how many teachers that were people of color did we actually have? And I said like in the 18 years and you think of all the different courses and all the different te classes that you've had, I recall having four, two wow. that were black and two that were Asian. And that's it. And I think she counted maybe two. So that's growing up in, for me, the Toronto system for her, the Peel system, where you think Ontario, at least in these areas, very diverse. But who were all the authority figures that you saw? Who were the, the type of teachers that you experienced? And it, it touches on this film because they, they talk about the type of education that's being taught when they ask when Kingsley goes to that new school, that Saturday school, and the teacher says, well, what do you know about Africa? And, and one of the students says, well, that's where slaves came from. And that's all they know. Yeah, right? and, yeah. and you think about it and you're like, well, yes. Like, what did we learn about? Exactly. I, I barely even learned that, right? I got that through popular culture, probably. It wasn't until later in life as I matured that I was like, wait a minute. I need to learn a lot more, especially, like, uh, you know, obviously, if you love music, you start digging into that and find out where so much of modern music comes through, like the griots and, and the storytellers from, from Africa, who were then, you know, sent over as slaves in many cases, but they weren't beforehand. So, yeah, it, it's really fascinating when you kind of dive into some of those, those uh, cultural aspects, excuse me, cultural aspects. It's funny, since you were talking about teachers of color, I, I probably had a little bit better luck if I'm looking through high school and university. Um, I grew up on the South Shore of Montreal and went to McGill in, in Montreal. Um, that shouldn't have any major difference or impact from that point of view. But I remember one of the best teachers I ever had was a high school math teacher. Uh, we covered vectors and matrices. Uh, and, you know, I already liked math anyway and, and arithmetic. So I was already somewhat engaged. He was, he was a um, South Asian uh, gentleman, uh, Mr. Brown. 
Um, and, you know, he had a very definite kind of accent when he spoke, but he always brought it down to things that it can gauge or they could understand. He used to talk about vectors being scattered all over the floor and vacuuming them up. Uh, and, and he just, he was so fun to listen to and just made these, you know, fairly complex uh, mathematical concepts so much more fun. Um, and, you know, that has nothing really to do with his background. He was just a really good teacher. And it's a damn shame that obviously in both our experiences, we didn't get to have that full uh, of, of teachers. Um, you know, again, I did pretty good, but then, you know, I went to engineering school. So it was pretty much four years of mostly white male teachers with, with a number of Asian teachers thrown in as well. So that kind of restricted the field as well. And I'm hoping that that's slowly getting better, but I, I don't think it is in that field. Um, going off topic a little bit, but I, I actually want to get back to before you were, you were talking about reminiscing about some of your own personal and your kids' experiences in the education system. Did you have any other kind of stories you want to tell that you could either relate back to the film or just kind of personal stories? Because I, I find that a fascinating area. Back then, and I don't know, I'm sure you probably had it as well, Montreal, but there was certain, there was like two streams that once you get to high school, there's the advanced stream and, and the general stream. And the general was more geared you towards the trades if you wanted to go to college, whereas the advance was university. And I remember even in, I guess what we would call middle school, grade eight and stuff, teachers and like guidance counselors trying to push me towards the general stream. Whereas my mom was like, no, he's going to do the advanced stream. He's going, and it wasn't that I, I had really any big educational problems. I, I just, I'll admit, I just wasn't working as hard back then it's as fine. I, as I should have. Like I, it really wasn't until I'd say grade 10 and stuff where I had, I just had a string of really good teachers that it kind of opened my eyes to like, oh, there's actually a lot of cool stuff you can do. Similar to Kingsley, how he, you know, was fascinated by science and stuff. I, you know, I remember in, in grade 10, having this great English teacher, uh, Mr. Pasco, we, we had an assignment at the library one day where it was like one of those independent study projects. So they took us to the library. They had a whole table of books, everything from like, I don't know, war and peace to pulpy novels. And they were like, pick something you have to do essentially like a book report on. And I remember picking up Lawrence Block's Out on the Cutting Edge and just reading the synopsis. It was about this former cop who's an alcoholic, now a private investigator, and he's been hired by a pimp to investigate someone trying to muscle in on his territory. I'm like, wait a minute, we're allowed to read this in school? <laughs> and that completely opened up my love of reading. Like, it's such a weird story, but it was one of those things where depending on like your teacher and experiences, so much of it is fluke, right? And if my mom hadn't pushed me or fought for me in terms of going to the advanced screen, like, I mean, my, my foot might have taken a different path. I remember one year going to a similar type of Saturday school and it was just a community run bunch of black teachers that had, it was predominantly black students. And it was just, essentially it was just like a tutoring program, but they were offering free tutoring for whatever subject. If those things weren't in place and I didn't experience those things, where would my life have gone? Where would it yeah. be? And my wife has a fellow teacher who she was in the paper, um, I guess just after the whole George Floyd thing, because they started looking at systemic racism in schooling. And she is of Nigerian descent. And she said, even though she was doing well in her classes, they still pushed her to do the general stream, you know, and she was making like top marks. And it was one of those things where her parents who are teachers now and she's a teacher she went on to being a teacher we're all like no she will do the advanced stream so it was just that kind of looking back at it now i'm like oh i see that was a, a problem that was a systemic problem back then it was just kind of well i didn't work hard enough i could assume that's why they were pushing that and then i started realizing but no there was students that were doing worse than me that were getting pushed in the advanced path and were given like every opportunity to survive and like yeah so it was just one of those things where looking back at it now and then seeing this film like it kind of hit a certain way that i wasn't expecting so now when i think of my children but they both love school. They both love learning. Oh, awesome. And, and that's great. But I'm also looking at teachers that 
that they have and at their school i saw one teacher of color maybe two and as you move up the the education ranks like principal ranks the even department head ranks it gets less and less right so the people who are making the policies the people who are enforcing the discipline are all homogenous it's it's very interesting time that we're we're in and i think this film does a good job of drawing parallels back in in history and showing these are things that we need to look out for that's a, that's a great point because i mean you you often hear and even my son kind of mentioned this about you know when the first time it was that he saw somebody on tv or film that he could relate to so he he's you know uh, he's half uh, south asian my, my wife is, is bengali so he he looks more uh indian fortunately <laughs> He, he got the right color skin in that uh, at least doesn't suffer the sunburns and, and he's not peaky <laughs> white like I am. So it, it's interesting you, you mentioned that these, these, some of the kids in the schools, they, they don't see themselves represented in those authority figures and the pe- in the people who know things, who are imparting the wisdom down. I think about uh, my son's elementary school days. So he had eight different years, I guess it was uh, JK, kindergarten, and then one through six. All eight of the teachers he had were female and white. Now, they were all I think really good. One or two were, were so-so but we're lucky in that the school in our neighborhood is a really good school. It is very homogenous for the most part is our, our neighborhood. But it was interesting because many of his friends actually came from uh, mixed race marriages for, for whatever reason. And that, that seems to be uh, um, just you know a bit of a coincidence. But when he did well at school, it's because he was engaged. And again, it's when teachers recognize. And it's, it, that's why it's so hard, I think, to be an effective teacher is you've got to say a cost of 30. That's 30 different human beings in your class that you have to kind of figure out what's going to engage them you can make some general things then look for those pockets so our son was was assessed as being gifted and i don't mean that and kind of oh he's obviously super smart gifted just means you 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 learn different you mm-hmm. approach things a bit differently so when the teachers recognized that they allowed him to you know do some assignments as, as a video instead of just writing it down because he was more engaged in that and that helped so much in getting him to understand things and be part uh, of, of some of those courses. Whereas sometimes, you know, if it was just like, read this, write a report, he could do that, but maybe he wasn't as interested. So it's interesting. It is about engagement. Yeah, the parents need to be engaged, but so do the teachers. And, you know, I think that's one of the key things is how do we enable teachers to engage the kids? Yeah, I think some of it has to do with training, because I, I don't want it to come across that if you are an Asian student, you are only going to learn the best from Asian teachers. Um, you know, ideally, especially being in a multicultural society, in theory, you should have teachers from all backgrounds, disciplines, all types of experience. It's more, as you said, training them to see when different learning tactics are needed. Also, understanding that not everyone's coming from the same background is going to have the same experiences. Some people are going to experience different types of trauma, whether it be war-torn country, what general systemic racism, what have you. But also like the, the curriculums that we learn. And again, thinking back to my own experience, I didn't know about residential schools till I was an adult. You know, and I think of all the years of schooling I went through and thinking of like all the times we talked about history and whatnot. And there was very little indigenous history outside of, you know, the early Canadian settlers. If the role wasn't to essentially help the white narrative, it wasn't taught. There's a certain aspect of heritage and history that we're not being told. I still to this day, unfortunately, know, know very little about the the, the the history of the Indigenous folks in, in, in Canada, let alone the rest of North America or the world. And it's just when you hear about the typically the bad stuff and you hear it in the news mm-hmm. and, and that gets reinforced a bit. And that's that's a shame. Even even over the past year, I mean, you know, we all like to consider ourselves fairly well enlightened and, and, and so forth. 
but just the George Floyd uh, um, um, incident in the U.S., so many things came to light that just helped, I don't want to say change my, my way of thinking, but helped just kind of clarify a few things. I'll give you an example, at, at work, our general manager for a very, very large division, uh, this is in a large corporation, had uh, a meeting. It was one of the most am- amazing corporate meetings I've ever been to in my over 30 years uh, with this company and, and talked about that and had a number of black leaders on the call to talk about their own experiences. And he opened up and he's this big white guy from Texas. And, you know, I was never sure about him. And I thought he was a little bit uh, egotistical and all that. But he was, he was frankly emotional. And he talked about how he went out to some of his black friends after it happened and, and showed shock and surprise. And he said their only shock and surprise was why he was shocked and surprised. This has been going on all the time. Why are you surprised? And, and it's, again, it's not like I was surprised, but it was, it was hearing that. It's kind of like, that just it changes the context of things so much. And again, we, we've derailed a bit from, from our main topic here, but a lot of it leads into that kind of stuff of just being open to understanding those other viewpoints. One thing that I keep going back to just about things that I've learned this year is just like make sure I'm trying to understand that context, have the empathy from the other side. And that just opens things up. What shocked me most about the Floyd thing wasn't the video because I I've spent years seeing videos like that. It was more the the global awakening. Mm. Of, and people starting to realize like just how bad systemic racism really is. It's impacting every industry, most facets of life. Heck, even the pandemic, the, syst- the statistics are showing like which type of people are getting more yeah. uh, hurt by it and whatnot. So it's, a, it's not a, a solution that we're going to fix right away. But just the, the simple fact that only, it only took now that people are starting to, to realize. And as we both acknowledge, We've gone through school learning a certain type of thing. We are we are adults now, you know, living our lives, and there were still many things that weren't taught to us. So you have to think of all the generations that are essentially seeing the world in one way, and then when someone's saying, "Um, you know, there's some issues here," and they go, "No, no, there's no problems," you know, and it took a pandemic and then this act that happened during a pandemic for people to go, "Oh, wait a minute." And for you know, some segments of, of people that always hear these things take time has got to be so frustrating. I mean, I, I, I am so privileged. Like, I know that's a word that gets bandied about a lot, but uh, we talked about that just, you know, how, how I'm doing, you know, in the pandemic, but just overall that I never had to wait, mm-hmm. right, for, for things to change. So when you look at it, you say, well, you know, in many ways, yeah, a lot of stuff takes time, but if you keep saying that, when are we actually going to do something about it? And then, you know, you know, maybe we need to push this a little bit harder. Maybe we need to force this through. So if it's still taking time, what in the hell are we waiting for? We've got a whole new generation that's growing up. They're seeing racial inequality and they're actively upset about it, you know, opposed to dismissing it. So there are a lot of bright spots. I, you know, I like to think that with the last shot of this film, as Kingsley is, is reading and we're seeing the, the galaxy and the infinite possibilities, you know, it's, it's probably the best way to say that life doesn't have to be a certain way. You know, there are infinite possibilities when it comes to education, learning, infinite possibilities for what our children could achieve or where their lives will take them. This film is optimistic as much as, as tough as it is, it's, it's never hard to watch, not have to, to worry about it being like graphic. Like, you know, there's certain times when films will deal with a type of injustice and really lay heavily into the brutality of it. And it's interesting when you compare that to the rest of the small acts uh, set of films, they all, I, I think, have different kind of outcomes, so to speak. And, and most of them are kind of mixed. There's 
optimism. There's good things that happen. There's progression, but there's also that, man, do they still have a long way to go from that point to even get where we are. And then, you know, some of the films even kind of relate to like, yeah, but where we are, is that so great? So there's sort of that, that mixed message in there, but I think that's really good in that he doesn't make it that kind of polar type of thing. This is right. This is wrong. I mean, obviously there's a lot of injustice in there, but he, he kind of says, here's what happened. Here's some optimism but here's stuff that still needs to be fixed. Uh, even in a movie like uh, Lover's Rock, which I, I rewatched again last night, I just so good. That so film. good. It, it is my favorite movie of 2020. It, it, it has the, those moments that really kind of bring a lot of those things to life. After like an entire, you know, evening party, you know, the, uh, the, the couple go back to his workplace and he's, you know, uh, got her in his arms and all that. And his white boss comes in and, you know, just happy bad timing and all that. And then within five seconds, belittles him. Just really, like with one comment and, and you know calls him boy and like oh what a deflating moment for him and, and I think the audience too there's still so much joy in that movie but oh <laughs> to throw that in but let me just briefly kind of rave about the the silly game scene uh, um, which is 10 minutes it's 10 minutes of this one well five minutes of the song and then five minutes of it essentially acapella by the audience where you can hear them shuffle on the floor and move I, I could not stop smiling throughout that entire scene it's it's amazing it's camera work where it is how you just go between the different characters how you 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 feel their movements and my god how you miss house parties or just you know (laughs) human interaction to that level uh that that probably you know adds to that movie but regardless the the music in that film the the movement oh it's just a glorious piece of art yeah and that's one of the things i loved about small acts anthology as a whole, because even though you have some tough moments, the there's a sense of community. And I like that he incorporates a film like Lover's Rock, because I think a lot of other filmmakers, if they were to do an anthology like this, they would probably do Mangrove because it's, you know, protesting police brutality, red, white and blue, systemic racism on the police force and maybe education but they would do it as a trilogy and it would be nothing but hardship whereas in all of these films there's a sense of hope and community uh, or at least hope through community work and i love the whole anthology but lover's rock is just something something special where i think steve mcqueen has been for years working on a, a whole other level but for him to come out with with five films that are all fascinating in their own right they're just all wonderful and i recommend listeners check it out bob where can listeners find you uh, these days, it's just Twitter. And even then, it's it's a little sporadic, shall we say, um, at The Logical Mind. I always mean to be more active. Uh, occasionally, I try, and then I sort of fade back into the woodwork. No, no, that's it. You're still you're still watching stuff. Uh, are you on Letterboxd? No, no. I'm, well, I have an idea. I've never really used it. I, I am plowing through stuff. If there's an upside to the pandemic, I, I've sort of hit the, the numbers that I used to hit like about a decade ago in the number of movies. And I'm happy about that, whether it's Criterion, whether it's new movies, whether it's any of the other thousands of streaming services that uh, we're making use of. Yeah. 2020 was actually an excellent year in film. Yes. We didn't have as many blockbusters and all that. I'm kind of okay because if I even look at my top, I don't know, 50, 60 films, number 60 is still really darn good. So I'm really happy with last year in film anyway, with uh, the films that we got. I completely agree. If, you, if you're a, a film lover who doesn't look at things in the, the lens of award season, which a lot of people online seem to, there's two types of, of 2020. There's a 2020 that was phenomenal, just full of great movies. 
And then there's the 2020 that was a lackluster year because the award things aren't that clear and who's going to be. It's like, no, no, there's a lot of great movies out there. Like, And listeners, you can find me on Twitter at Small Mind or you can contact the show on Twitter at Changing Reels AC. Thank you for listening. Be sure to like and share the conversation with friends and family. And remember, you can change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time.